Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 on page 902? If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Uh, a number of you have asked. More of you probably will ask me. I'm healthy. Uh, I was sick as a dog last time I preached two Sundays ago. And if you hear anything in my voice, it's more because of uh, talking yesterday for the better part of six hours to our inquirers class here uh, uh, in the meeting room. 37 of you came to learn more about the church and kept me talking uh, for a long time. Um, or maybe it was just my big mouth, I don't know. Uh, we continue in our sermon series on the book of Acts. In the last passage we looked at, the Apostle Paul gave his last lecture. He shared last words and an emotional farewell with some of his closest friends in whom he had invested uh, three years of his life, the elders at the church in Ephesus. He knew he'd never see them again. And then he got back on the ship to sail toward Jerusalem, knowing that prison and hardships would await him there. And I almost skipped over the verses that we're about to look at because they seem to be um, just about travel logistics. You know, Paul traveled here and there, met this and that people, and let's jump to verse 10. But we'd be missing uh, from this passage a unique glimpse at the nature of family relationships in the church of God. So let's pick up at the end of chapter 20 as Paul leaves the Ephesian elders. Listen carefully. These are God's words. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord... Grant us eyes to see, grant us ears to hear as you speak to us through this word, preserved for the church across all the centuries. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'll show you quickly the map um, that uh, gives us the details of Paul hopping from Miletus at the end of the arrow on the top left to uh, the islands passing through uh, this little area. Uh, to the south of Cyprus, out in the open Mediterranean, and down to the right uh, in um, what is called uh, um, Philistia, or uh, the top of Palestine in Tyre, where he stopped, and then hopped down across the coast to Caesarea, where we last left, and then would go inland down to Jerusalem, where he would be imprisoned. This is one of those passages where we're not going to look at the little details so much as we'll try to connect these scenes to get the big picture. 
to learn something about relationships in the family of God, the church. Another way to describe these relationships is to call them spiritual friendships. In the verses that I read, there's a lot of hugging and crying going on, some involving people who hardly know each other. And if we ask the question why, the simple answer is because we're built for relationship. First thing we look at, the necessity of relationship. There are certain needs that we have that uh, we're designed to express, and some of them are very easy to express and socially acceptable, and nobody thinks differently. You know, you're with a group of friends, and you say, man, I'm hungry. Let's, let's grab a bite to eat. The need is expressed. Let, let me stop and, and, uh, uh, at this water fountain because I'm dying of thirst. Or, I, I'm tired, folks. I'm going to head home and call it a night. Other needs would be more awkward to talk about. If a teacher said, class, stay right here by the statue so I can go in and take care of number two, keep that to yourself. You, you don't express those kinds of needs. Or, or, or talk about real-time lustful temptations in mixed company. You, you, you don't tend to talk openly about that. But here's a need that God has built into every human being that needs to be shared far more often but isn't because it tends to bring embarrassment. I am lonely. Very few people say that. Very few people express that need. Unless you think that's something only a single person or a widow or a divorcee would say, let me tell you, one of the most painful things I observe and hear in counseling as a pastor is the incredible loneliness that married people experience even after being married for years and years. It can afflict any of us when sin breaks down relationships, when community drifts apart, when conflict tears apart friendship. Loneliness is not far away. Too many of you handle loneliness by distraction. You know, one of the appeals of Facebook or Instagram is the illusion these social media tools create. The illusion that you're connected to all these other people in relationship when all you're being is really a voyeur. You share in that friend's birthday because you read about how they celebrated. You delight in their children or their puppy because you saw a picture. You mourn with that person because you read their post, the tribute to grandma. And sometimes these can, can be healthy helpful complements to real relationship, but all too often we let them substitute for real, in-the-flesh, face-to-face relationship. Loneliness is like hunger or thirst. It, it's a sign that something's lacking, that you were designed to need and to enjoy. And so when you ignore or deny loneliness, maybe because you're tired of trying, maybe because you're tired of loving people and not receiving love um, back, uh, maybe because you've been rejected, when you ignore or deny loneliness, you're settling for something less than God desires for you. When you escape into some mindless, all-consuming game on your phone, when you live through imagination and fantasy, when you immerse yourself in the a world of sports or Hollywood, you're settling for something far less than God has designed you to enjoy. Sometimes you're lonely 
because of your dysfunctions, because of messy parts of who you are that need to be cleaned up. And ironically, the only chance you have at realizing these things and changing is through community, is by being involved in relationship. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Here's the thing. When you reject or deny or uh, the loneliness or you fail to actively pursue, energetically pursue friendship and community, what you're doing is drifting away from the reflection of God that you were always designed to provide. Every single human being is created in the image of God. That means increasingly we are to reflect who God is. Who is He? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons and one God in community from all eternity past, loving and being loved, giving and receiving, serving and being served. There's a a striking statement that we come across in the very first pages of the Bible. God has made all things as the Creator, and He has declared them good and very good. And before sin has entered this creation... God makes this statement, it is not good. And it should strike us as, whoa, what, what happened here? What, what malware entered the system? What virus infected creation? What went wrong? And the answer is nothing. God hadn't finished creating yet. Although man had been made in his image, although Adam was already enjoying perfect relationship with his creator, In the paradise of the garden, mankind needed something, someone like him, to be with him, to share life as an equal. God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. Friendship of the highest order was the missing piece. We're built for community. We need it. And in loneliness, it's a sign that something is not right, that God has designed perfectly for us to enjoy. Marriage is not the solution because broken ones still leave people lonely. Rich spiritual friendship within the community of faith, the church of Jesus Christ, that's what God has designed for everyone. What are the roots of real friendship? Secondly, back to Paul and Acts. At the end of chapter 20, uh, we, we read this, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And then we go right into chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them. These are emotional pictures. Hugging and crying and weeping. People not wanting to let go. And the pictures repeated in verses 3 through 6. The interesting thing though is here in verses 3 through 6 in Tyre, Paul probably didn't even know the Christians in this city. This, this was not a church that he had planted But the bond that quickly developed was on display when the entire families came out of the city to pray. Typically, it was just the men who would do this with the uh, ministry leaders. And and typically, the, the prayer posture was standing. But in this case, all the men, women, and children knelt on the beach with Paul to pray, a special sign of intimacy. How did such deep spiritual friendship among strangers form in only one week. I have, uh, I got a taste of that over 15 years ago when I was uh, on staff of a church in Memphis and was uh, tasked to lead a group of young adults on two successive summers 
on missions trips to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And each summer, at the end of our 10-day trip, the farewell gathering involved the entire church showing up, showering us with gifts, praying for us, and weeping with us that these bonds that we had enjoyed in a short amount of time, 10 days, were to be broken once again. Irrational. Doesn't make sense that a bunch of strangers in 10 days could form such bonds, but my explanation in reflecting back over it is pretty simple. That we had devoted days and nights to come alongside La Mission, this church, poor church, without much resources, giving generously like the Macedonians that Paul has just visited to minister to those that have far less than they did. We spent days and nights feeding the poor, working alongside these believers in Argentina in their gospel outreach. In, uh, we, we, we feasted together. We spent hours drinking mate and learning about each other's cultural differences. We invested in each other, all fueled by the radical unity that we shared in Jesus Christ to go from Tennessee to Argentina and to be bonded together is only possible because of common life in Jesus. Deep friendship and intimacy don't come merely from uh, sharing the same interests or being alike. Those can be um, beginning ingredients, but depth can't come just from that. Um, Spiritual friendship comes from something deeper. Jerry Bridges, who just passed uh, into glory this past week, uh, pastor and teacher and author for decades, in his book, True Community, he wrote this, it is not the fact that we are united in common goals or purposes that makes us a community. Rather, it is the fact that we share a common life in Christ. Friends share interests, maybe cheering on the same sports team. Friends engage in common activities, like appreciating the arts when no one else will go to the museum with you. You have that bond. Friends might share the life, same life stage, intuitively knowing what it's like to struggle through this phase, what it's like to be exhausted by the same challenges. But if that's all there is to friendship, your friends will inevitably tend to look like you, or at least be of the same exact socioeconomic class. But if your unity flows from being united to Christ, who is the Savior of all kinds of people, from all backgrounds and all nationalities and all races, then you should find yourself becoming friends with people you might not otherwise hang out with. You should find yourself tasting more and more moments of deep unity with people you don't share much with, who come from different family backgrounds, who have different cultural habits and preferences because spiritual friends look together at the truth of God's Word. Spiritual friends serve the King with their lives together. Spiritual friends see the same glorious Jesus and therefore taste a unity that transcends all external differences. That's why, by the way, uh, one of the things we talked about yesterday in the Inquirer's class, our core values, one of our five core values as a church is ethnic diversity. We we didn't choose that because it's a politically correct thing and it's sort of cool. 
to be different than most other churches. We, we, we established ethnic diversity as a core value because it demonstrates to the world what the power of the gospel can do in bringing together people who are different, who otherwise wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't tend to hang out together, but actually share radical unity. That's why I continue to, to, uh, to share with uh, some others, especially pastor friends, what, what an incredibly unique team of elders God has assembled here on session um, I wish I had a picture to show you because otherwise it just sounds like a good bar joke. But when the session meets, when the session meets at the Chinese pastor's house, the Indian guy comes in, followed by the German, and then the Korean and the Dutch guy follows, and then the Western European mutt, and usually the Chilean uh, trails. You know, some things are just predictable. <laughs> and yet, despite our culturally different backgrounds. We enjoy, we delight in incredibly deep unity because of our shared life in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of God reaching the nations with the gospel. That's the essence of real friendship. Uh, Lastly, friendship provides the sharpening impact. Verse 4 of chapter 21 presents a little bit of a dilemma. Paul is in the city of Tyre, and this is what we read. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Hmm. Because back in chapter 20, verse 22, Paul said, Now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, knowing that prison and hardships are facing me. Well, which is it? (laughs) Can the Spirit not decide what he's saying to God's people? What's important to note is that Luke, the author of Acts, who included both details and others, didn't find these contradictory. Otherwise, he probably not, would have uh, either not included these details or provided a little bit of editorial explanation. He presents them side by side with no problem, no tension, no contradiction whatsoever. The people of Tyre were informed of, by the Spirit of Paul's destiny, and the people of Tyre were moved by a Spirit-driven love to be concerned for Paul so much that they urged him not to go, but their words and thoughts are still consistent with the Spirit compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem. Maybe it was to strengthen his resolve, to, to help him crystal clear realize what he was in for, and to go with an undivided heart and mind. I know why you'd say that. The Spirit is prompting you to, to, to have care and concern for me out of love, and we didn't even know each other before I visited for this week. But that same Spirit is saying, this is what I must suffer. I must follow in the footsteps of the Savior Jesus, who resolutely went to Jerusalem knowing that the end of his life awaited him there. These interactions show us something important about spiritual friendship. We need community for accountability. We need community for decision-making wisdom, and we need community for growth and maturity in Christ. Um, In in his book, Blue Like Jazz, author Don Miller describes moving into a house with five other guys. And he says, living in community sounded so um, odd. Cults do that sort of thing, you know? First you live in community, then you drink, punch, and die. But he came to appreciate this... um, big household with a bunch of guys sharing life, and then he had this insight. Living in community made me realize one of my faults. 
I was addicted to myself. All I thought about was myself. The only thing I really cared about was myself. I had very little concept of love, altruism, or sacrifice. I discovered that my mind is like a radio that picks up only one station, the one that plays me, K-Don, all Don, all the time. The most difficult lie I've ever contended with is this. Life is a story about me. Community shook him out of that. Increasingly here at GRC, our counseling ministry intentionally chases after to recruit someone to be uh, a, a spiritual friend to the counselee, to work alongside the counselor's ministry. If that sounds artificial, you know, let's find somebody to be your friend. If it sounds artificial, it's only because so few people in the church have that kind of built-in community a brother or a sister who loves them enough and is walking with Jesus at the same time to look to the Scripture, apply God's healing, renewing Word, and say hard things in love. Most people don't have that, and we need to go looking for them. Those that do, let me tell you, healing and wholeness are far more efficient to achieve because something of God's design in relationship is already there to be tapped. We need that kind of community, every one of us. Someone to speak loving truth into your life. Someone to give you a reality check. Someone to remind you not to think more of yourself than you ought. Life is not one radio station playing you, K-Don, all the time. Spiritual friends hold each other accountable. They pool wisdom in making decisions. You know, people uh, wonder all the time, how do I figure out God's will? And the wrong way to figure out God's will is to pray twice and say, God, if this is wrong, stop me before I make a big mistake. And then to tell your friends, well, I have a peace about this because I prayed about it and God didn't intervene. You know why you have a peace about it? Because you got what you wanted. That's why you have a peace. That's the worst phrase you could use. I have a peace about it, and therefore I know God's will. No. A better, more healthy approach to um, have confidence in God's will is to invite maturing Christian friends into your decision-making consideration well before you've made it, well before you've landed on the spot, and you say, I think I'm going here. Stop me. That's not the way to make a decision is to go to Don, Donald or Werner and say, hey, guys, I, I'm considering this. You know me pretty well. Be honest with me. What do you think? Um, are there better alternatives? Am I, am I being selfish, uh, short-sighted? Am I, am I being a poor steward of what God has given me in time and finances and opportunities? Are there, um, do you welcome the intrusion of friends into your difficult decisions, into your struggles, into your dreams? Are there people in your life who will say, I see how excited you are about this, but I'm not so sure that's a good thing? Somebody to put a damper, you know, somebody to rain on your parade. That's a healthy thing. Do you have someone in your life who will, who, who will say this to you? I, I see the strain that you're under because of the situation, and I am here for you. But stop whining so that together we can figure out what God wants to do with the situation to shape you more to the image of the Savior. Do you have somebody who loves you that much as a spiritual friend to, to shake you out of your little pity party, 
to cancel it, you know, um, to, to, to move you somewhere else where you can be open to what God is showing you. Now, uh, th- these are snapshots of Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That's all we're talking about here. We have to realize that Acts 21 is, is a unique situation because the Holy Spirit has revealed to an apostle what the path ahead looks like. Uh, but, but that makes it all the more significant that these spiritual friends are lovingly sticking their nose into Paul's business, nevertheless, and the Apostle Paul's not running away from it. He realizes this is what community should do. He just happens to know the very clear answer already because God Himself has told him. All of this reflects the design of the Creator in us. All of this puts flesh on the deepest friendship we could possibly taste. Listen to author and counselor Larry Crabb. The deepest urge in every human heart is to be in relationship with someone who absolutely delights in us, someone with resources we lack who has no greater joy than giving to us, someone who respects us enough to require us to use everything we receive for the good of others others because he has given it to us, knows we have something to give. The longing to connect defines our dignity as human beings and our destiny as image bearers. Who is this best friend? His name is Jesus. Wonderful, merciful counselor. Precious redeemer and friend. Let's pray in his name. Lord Jesus, in our loneliness, every single one of us, with the best of friends, with a healthy marriage, with tight family. Every single one of us will experience loneliness. Remind us, Lord Jesus, that you are the one to whom we have been promised, betrothed, engaged. You are the bridegroom. We, the church, are your bride. And you alone complete us. You alone satisfy. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Show us that you are all that, perfectly so, and so much more. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.